For one more week this morning, I would like us to take one more time to look at this great hymn of praise by Zacharias. This is known, as we said, as the Benedictus. This is uh, Zacharias' song as he hears and learns that he would not only be the father of John the Baptist, but here he is now holding his infant son, John the Baptist, in his hands and worshiping God and celebrating the arrival of the forerunner of Christ. You will remember that he was made mute for nine months and suddenly at the birth of his son his mouth is loosed and he's able to speak and speak he does because spilling forth from his lips is this great hymn of praise. Let me read once again verses 67 through 80. Luke chapter 1. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is Zacharias' great thanksgiving song pouring from his heart as he is holding his infant Son. It's a tremendous song as it's filled with all kinds of Old Testament allusions, all kinds of references to the Old Testament. And that would make sense to us because Zacharias was a priest. And certainly he spent his lifetime studying the Old Testament and perhaps even more so the last nine months. What else are you going to do when you can't speak? He studies. And certainly he went back to all these Old Testament promises that God made about the coming of Christ And he finds in the Old Testament three specific covenants that he brings out here in celebration of the coming of Christ. They are first the Davidic covenant in verses 68 to 71. Secondly, the Abrahamic covenant in verses 72 to 74. And thirdly, the new covenant in verses 76 to 79. I told you, I think I've shown you this slide the last couple Sundays, but I want you to see it again, this visual diagram that I think helps understand how these covenants are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You also have this in your bulletin. We thought it would be a good idea to put it in your bulletin so you can take it home and put it on your fridge. And you can remind yourself of these marvelous covenants. But you can see on the left-hand side that God made promises to the nation of Israel, a number of covenants, specifically three covenants that are redemptive in nature. They are in red up in the slide above you. Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And all three of those covenants have salvific purposes behind them. 
And they're all fulfilled, you can see, in the person and work of Christ. And if you travel all the way to the right side, you can see that they find their fulfillment in the kingdom. In the coming of Christ and the establishment of his millennial kingdom. That's what Zacharias was anticipating. That's what all of Israel was looking forward to. The arrival of the Christ, the Messiah, who would usher in these three redemptive covenants. Had Israel received Christ as their Messiah, they would have enjoyed the kingdom. They would have welcomed in the kingdom as God promised in the Old Testament. But they didn't, and so the kingdom went on hold sometime in the future. And right now, we're in that little age known as the church age. If you travel up from that area of the church, you can see that we as a church experience the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant through the new covenant. And it is that covenant that we want to address this morning, the new covenant. I want to review for you what we've seen the last couple Sundays. First, we saw that these covenants were the basis of Zacharias' praise to God at the birth of his son. And we said, first of all, that he was praising God for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That's point number one. We saw that two, two weeks ago. Verse 69 says, He has raised up for us a horn of salvation in the house of David, his servants. And so in the Davidic covenant, God promised David and the nation of Israel that they would have a greater son of David, a descendant who would establish the throne of David, who would set up the house of Jacob forever and have a kingdom that would never end. That's God's promises in the Davidic covenant. That they as a nation would have a king, an eternal king, and an eternal kingdom, and a throne that would be permanent, and a realm over which the son of David would reign forever. Solomon didn't fulfill that. No king after Solomon fulfilled that. No one in Israel fulfilled the Davidic covenant. So if you fast forward to the beginning of the New Testament and you see Zacharias, you can sense his sense of anticipation and excitement over the fact that the Messiah, the one who would fulfill the Davidic covenant, is soon to be born. So he's praising God, first, for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Secondly, he's praising God for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. You can see it down in verse 72. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. There's a second covenant that Zacharias goes back to and understands that the Messiah is the fulfillment of that covenant. We looked at it last week in Genesis chapter 12, and we said that God promised three things to the nation of Israel in the Abrahamic covenant. Now remember, at that point, there's no nation of Israel. There's no Jewish person. Abraham's the first. And he promised to Abraham personal blessings, national blessings, and universal blessings. Or to say it another way, he promised to Abraham a seed, a land, and that he would be a blessing. You can see it back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. He promised to Abraham that he would have many descendants. He would have a, a seed and he would be the father of many nations. Secondly, he promised him national blessings. That he would make him into a great nation. And he would give to this nation a land known as Palestine. It's a land that the people of Israel have never fully occupied. They've enjoyed parts of the occupation of that land, but they've never enjoyed the full links of enjoying the, the boundaries that God promised them as a nation. Thirdly, he promised them universal blessings. 
He says, I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So this was the Abrahamic covenant. Now put yourself in Zechariah's shoes and anticipate the sense of excitement that they're feeling and Israel is feeling as they know that the Messiah is coming in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. Tremendous. Absolutely tremendous to, to, to be at the cusp of redemption, redemptive history, to be there at that time, still looking forward to the time when, when God would promise and fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel. Tremendous. Because none of that's happened yet. They're still occupied by Rome. They're not the great nation that God promised them to be. They're not fully occupying the land that God promised them to be. And Zechariah knows that all of that's about to change. And I want you, as I said the last couple of weeks, to take you back and I want you to feel and I want you to sense what Zacharias was sensing. I want you to, to feel the hope of Israel. I want you to think how a Jewish person would have been thinking at this moment, anticipating the arrival of Messiah. And to do that this morning, I want to take you to the third covenant that Zacharias refers to here, the new covenant. So number three is praise for fulfillment of the new covenant. Now you have to stick with me. You have to think with me because once you grasp this, you will grasp the significance of this today for us, the church, and you will sense the great meaning of Christmas that we need to appreciate. Now, let me set the stage for you and just kind of recap what we said and then kind of put it in a context that sets the stage for why we need to understand the new covenant. God has promised to Israel a covenant with David to have a king on the throne forever. And he's promised to to Israel that they would be a great nation with a land and that their enemies would be removed. And so all of this is going to happen. And Zechariah knows that. But he knows that the only way for Israel to truly appreciate the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and the blessings of the Davidic covenant is through a new covenant, a different covenant. Here's why. Listen very carefully. Think about what it would be like if God brought the nation of Israel into their land and gave them their land and gave them a king and gave them a kingdom, but their hearts remained rebellious. And they remained a disobedient people and they continued to reject God and they continued to disobey Him and they continued to break God's law. There would be a certain sense of emptiness and lack of success if the Messiah came and did all those things and established them as a nation and brought up a kingdom and served as their king... And yet their hearts remained hard. It would really defeat the purpose of Israel, making them into a great nation. It would really defeat the purpose of all the covenants. It would really miss the point of all that. They they weren't just to make Israel a great nation and remove their enemies and give them the land. No, God wanted to make them his people with a heart for him who would obey Him joyfully and worship Him fully. That's the the reason behind all these covenants. And so if it stops at just a nation and just a land and just a king and just a kingdom without a heart change, it really misses the point of all these covenants. And so since sin has entered into the world, God has been about redeeming people. God's been about redeeming sinners. He's been about pouring out His mercy upon those who don't deserve it. And so from the beginning of the world, when sin entered through Adam, one of God's greatest priorities has been to save people from their sin. 
And we have to understand that is part of these covenants or we're going to miss the heart of all these covenants and we're going to miss really the point of Christmas. And so the provisions of the new covenant, listen, are primarily spiritual. The provisions of the Davidic covenant and the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant are primarily material and national to make them a nation, to give them land. So those are primarily outward blessings, but not with a new covenant. With a new covenant, it's primarily spiritual in nature. Personal blessings. Where God would grant his people forgiveness. He would grant them obedience. He would write his law in their hearts. He would place his spirit within them. He would give them a knowledge of God. And so this is all what is inherent in the new covenant. To be a people with a heart for God rather than a people that's disobedient and rejecting God and disobeying him. And so those are the provisions of the new covenant. To be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. To be regenerated. To be forgiven. To be given the knowledge of God. To have the law of God written on their heart. Those are the spiritual blessings that God intended for his people, but they wouldn't come through the Abrahamic covenant and they wouldn't come through the Davidic covenant. They would have to come through a new covenant. Look at your diagram in your bulletin. And I want you to see that the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, remember God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and all the families of the earth through you. How do those blessings come? They don't come by themselves. They come through the new covenant. If you trace the line from Abrahamic covenant all the way to the cross, you'll see it passes through the new covenant. And so in order for us to receive the blessings of the new, or the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, there must be a new covenant. And that's what we want to address this morning. It's what Zacharias addresses here at the end of his great song of praise. It's not called the New Covenant here, but you can see the terminology of the New Covenant. Look in verse 76 of Luke chapter 1. Zechariah says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Up to this point, Zacharias' song has primarily been about the Messiah about the coming of Christ, but here he specifically mentions his son, John the Baptist, verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. I want you just to imagine this scene for a moment. Here's a first-time father holding his eight-day-old son. And by the way, dad's 80 years old. And he looks at his son And he says, son, this is what you're going to do. Doesn't every parent have that dream for their child? To think about what their child will do or be as they grow up? To see what they're going to be in life as they grow up? Imagine that same sense here with John the Baptist's father. Looking at his son and thinking, this child is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who would prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And he says to him, son, you are going to be the prophet of the Most High. What a great name. That's a, that's a name for Christ. He's the Most High. Look up in chapter 1, verse 32. And do you remember when the angel told Mary that she would have a son? Look at He told her, verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
That's a, that's a reference to Christ. And the Most High is God himself, and Christ is the Son of the Most High. And here, John the Baptist is going to be the one who would be a prophet of the Most High. He would prepare the way for the coming of the Most High One, Christ himself. Tremendous. See, Zacharias knows that John the Baptist would be an Elijah-like figure. Remember, Malachi closes with the statement that there would be one who comes in the steps of Elijah, who would come and prepare the way for the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is John the Baptist. And Zacharias, as he's holding his son, knows this and knows that he, he will be the one who will prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of Christ. Now, look at the substance of John the Baptist's ministry. Look at verse 77. Look what he will do. He will give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. That's new covenant language. Those are new covenant promises. Those are specific promises by God to Israel built into the new covenant that he will give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. And that's what John the Baptist did. That's what he preached. That was his message. There's salvation coming. There's forgiveness for your sins if you'll just repent. You remember the first words of John the Baptist? Matthew chapter 3. He shows up on the scene for his public ministry. And he came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was he saying? He was saying salvation is here and you can receive it if you'll just repent. The Messiah is here and he has come to bring salvation and bring forgiveness. So his message was a message of repentance. It was an offer of salvation. It was an offer for forgiveness. It was an offer to, to receive forgiveness for their sins. And that's what he preached. He was really a, a preacher with one message. Repent. 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 There's salvation coming in Christ. See, he knew that the only way for the Davidic covenant and the only way for the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled was there to be a new covenant. That's what he came preaching. He was a preacher of the new covenant. He came preparing the way for Christ to usher that in. Problem is, Israel didn't want it. They didn't want it, did they? Oh, they wanted the kingdom, and they wanted the king, and they wanted the land, and they wanted to be the great nation, and they wanted to be uh, under God's blessing, and they wanted to be a nation of peace and righteousness. They wanted to be free from their enemies. They wanted all the, the material blessings of the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. They wanted all of that. But they didn't want the spiritual change on the inside. They didn't want the spiritual blessings that came with it. They were blind. They were spiritually dead. They were mired in this self-righteousness. And they thought they were right with God because of their self-righteousness. And so they wanted all of the, the blessings, the material blessings of those first two covenants. But their deep need was salvation. Their deep need was internal. Their deep need was spiritual. The problem is they didn't want to hear about it. They didn't want to hear about that. They didn't want their sin exposed. They, they didn't want their, their empty self-righteousness exposed. And so they were perfectly content to see John the Baptist killed, weren't they? We just read it this morning in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus says, hey, John the Baptist came and preached, but you didn't believe him. They were fully fine when he was killed. But that's what he came preaching. 
He came paving the way for the coming of the new covenant in Christ. And that's why in verse 77 it says, He came to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. That's what the new covenant brings. It brings forgiveness. It brings salvation. It brings spiritual change. And that's what He came to offer. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us. Isn't that great? God in the new covenant promised mercy. Not just mercy, tender mercy with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us. That's the name of Christ. Have you ever heard that name of Christ before? He's the sunrise from on high. He's the light of the world. He's the one who, verse 79 says, came to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. He is God's sunshine and He is God's sunrise because He's the light of the world who brings salvation. And John the Baptist would announce that and Zacharias knows that. And friends, that's what Christmas is about. It's about the coming of the sunrise. The one who would bring forgiveness. The one who would be the expression of God's tender mercy. The one who would help us who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to bring life and light and to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's exactly what Christ came to do. Well, what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to take you into the Old Testament. And I want you to see the foundations of the new covenant. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do Old Testament history in five minutes. You don't think it can be done? You, you're all skeptical, but we're going to do it. Okay, five minutes, Old Testament history. Go to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. And as you're finding your way there, let me trace for you just a very quick Old Testament history. God chose Abraham, said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless all the families of the world through you. You're going to have many descendants. You're going to be the father of many nations. That was God's promise to Abraham. And he promised it to his son Isaac. And he promised it to to his son Jacob. And he passed it on to the 12 sons of Jacob. And by the end of Genesis, you've got 70 people who are now of this Abrahamic covenant. 70 descendants. And they travel down to the nation of Egypt. By the time you get to the beginning of Exodus... They are a great nation. Two million people strong. And they begin to be mistreated under Pharaoh and under his harsh rule. And so God raises up a deliverer, a man by the name of Moses and his brother Aaron. And he asks them to lead his people out of Egypt. And that's exactly what they do. They announce to Pharaoh that they're going to leave. And Pharaoh's heart was hard and hardened. And so he didn't want to let them go. And so finally, through a series of ten plagues, God made Pharaoh relinquished the Israelites and they left the land of Egypt. Pharaoh pursued them. Through the waters of the Red Sea, God poured those waters over them and destroyed them. And the Israelites, two million strong, travel to the, the, the land of Sinai, to Mount Sinai, and there they meet with God and God gives them His commandments. He gives them His law. He gives them what is known as the Mosaic Covenant. Remember I said there's other covenants? 
There are three redemptive covenants, Abrahamic, Davidic, and New, but there are other covenants which are not redemptive, and the Mosaic Covenant was one of those non-redemptive covenants. It's not an unconditional covenant like the first three are. It's a conditional covenant. And God gave them all those laws. You love doing your quiet times in Leviticus, don't you? Well, all of those laws and all those regulations are for the purpose of making Israel unique, because they were. They were God's chosen people. He he called them out of all the nations to be his people. And so God gave them all those laws to make them separate and distinct from all the other nations so they would stand out, so that they could be a light to the nations and a blessing to the people of the world. That's why God gave them those laws. The moral laws, like the Ten Commandments. The civil laws, like how to relate to each other. And the ceremonial laws, like the sacrificial system and all the other festivals that God gave to the nation of Israel. And God said to him... Obey these laws, not for salvation, because they're not salvific in nature. You're not going to be saved by keeping the Mosaic law. But they were to keep them distinct, to separate them from other nations. God says, if you obey them, I'll bless you. If you don't obey them, I'll curse you. And the people say, yeah, we'll obey them, all of them. That's exactly what we're going to do, God. We're we're going to obey those commandments. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the words which God has spoken, we will do. Just Moses, tell us what God says, and we're going to do it all. Well, you know how that turned out. That didn't turn out so good. Intent was good. Didn't happen. Because their problem is your problem. And their problem is my problem. Sin. Disobedience. That's what keeps us from keeping the law. That's what keeps us from obeying God fully. And so no matter what they were promised, and no matter what they committed themselves to, they could not obey. They couldn't do it, because inherent in them was the law of sin and disobedience operating within their hearts. In fact, the law even did that. The law showed them that. The law brought out their sin nature. The law showed them that they, they couldn't obey God, and it was meant to drive them to the mercy of God. So, God makes this covenant, this conditional covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai and says, if you obey, I'll bless you. If you don't obey, I'll curse you. So before they could ever receive the blessings of the Davidic covenant, before they could ever receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, they had to deal with one huge issue. Their hearts. Their sin, their disobedience. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. Here's God's reminder to them about the law right before they enter into the land, the promised land. You remember Moses is about to die. Joshua's about to take over. They're about to enter into the promised land. And God says to them in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you're crossing the Jordan to enter and to possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and your curse. 
So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, by holding fast to Him. This is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them. Do you see? The blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are tied to obedience. They're tied to a heart change. They're, they're, they're tied. The problem is they can't do it. And God knows this. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Next chapter, verse 14. Now watch this. Even before they get into the land, God knows that they're not going to obey Him. He knows that they're going to turn to idolatry. Look at 31, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua. Present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And so Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And a pillar of cloud stood at the door of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. And this people will arise. And they will play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they shall be consumed and many evils and troubles shall come upon them so that they will say in that day, is it not because of our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? I will surely hide my face in that day because all of the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. Do you see? Even before they get in the land, even before they cross the Jordan, God knows that they're going to obey. They're going to turn to idolatry. They're going to turn to disobedience. And there's nothing within their hearts that enables them to obey God. And you could just rehearse the rest of the history of the Old Testament and know that that's the case. Fast forward to the time of Joshua. They didn't destroy all their enemies. So you come to the judges and there's all these nations that are there that are still trying to, to, to tempt them into idolatry. And that's exactly what happens. They fall prey to idolatry. God brings another nation against them to discipline them. They plead for deliverance. God raises up a judge who defeats the enemy and the whole cycle starts all over again. Fast forward to the time of the kings. They're marked by disobedience there. Solomon didn't obey. The nation was divided and the, the kings of the northern tribe, none of them were obedient. None of them were godly. And only eight of the southern kingdom kings were godly. So in 722 B.C., God sent the Assyrians to take the northern tribes captive. And in 605, 597, and 586 B.C., God sent the Babylonians to take the southern tribe captive. And that's their history. Not able to obey. Not able to, to follow God fully. And because of that, God would not bring about the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant or the blessings of the Davidic covenant. And that's the Old Testament. In five minutes. I told you it could be done. So they couldn't obey. And no matter what they did, no matter how hard they tried, no matter how much God promised blessings, and no matter how much God promised cursings, none of that would deal with their sin problem. And so God had to initiate a new covenant. 
a, a new unconditional covenant that would do two things. That would forgive their sins and would change them on the inside to stop their sinning and start obeying. That's what God had to do. He had to do a work in their heart to, number one, forgive their sins. And then, number two, to cause them to stop sinning and to start obeying. And that, friends, are the provisions of the new covenant. That God said, okay, my people are not going to be able to receive the blessings of the Davidic covenant and the promises of the Abrahamic covenant because of the sin that's in their heart. So he's going to have to initiate a new covenant to cause a new law to operate within their hearts. And that's exactly what he did. Now, don't check out. Because your problem and my problem was their problem. So don't just think, well, this is Old Testament stuff, this is Israel stuff, this doesn't pertain to us. No, it does pertain to us because as a church, you partake of the new covenant. We'll come back and look at that real quickly. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. And I want to show you the key places in the Old Testament where God promises this new covenant with the nation of Israel. Remember, what you're trying to do here is you're trying to put yourself in Zacharias' shoes. And you're trying to feel what he felt and what Israel would have felt And you need to feel the weight of this new covenant in order to appreciate that. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 32. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. That's the Mosaic covenant. They broke the Mosaic covenant. And so God says here in Jeremiah 31. Oh wait. But there's days that are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. By the way, notice the parties of this covenant. The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Those are the parties of the new covenant. And when God makes a promise, does he break his promises? No. God made a covenant 3,000 years ago to the nation of Israel and the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Israel. That's why we believe those covenants are still in operation. They're still in effect, although on hold now, these are promises that God made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, we're going to see in a moment that we as a church get to participate in that. We get to receive some of the the blessings of the new covenant, but that doesn't mean that Israel won't experience the blessings of the new covenant. They will when God fulfills the provisions of the new covenant in the future. Verse 32. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. Watch this. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Under Moses, the law of God was written on stones. But God says, there's coming a day when I fulfill my new covenant with you that I will write my law on your heart and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's a promise of the internalization of the law. 
When God writes that very law that he gave them in the Old Testament on their hearts so that they obey it and they become his people. Look at the result of this, verse 34. They will not teach again, and each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. They won't need anyone to teach them about the Lord. They won't need anyone to teach them God's law because the day is coming when God does a work in their hearts as a nation and their hearts turn toward Him, their, their sins are forgiven, and they will all know Him from the least to the greatest. And by the way, when you start the millennial kingdom, that will be true. Every person who enters the millennial kingdom will have had a heart change in the fulfillment of the new covenant and the beginning of the millennium, all Israel is saved. God will fulfill his promises. How would this happen? Look at verse 34. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. That's their problem. The problem is sin. It's iniquity. It's idolatry. It's disobedience. It's rebellion. That's what the law produced within them. And God promises, no, I'm going to do a work in your heart. And I'm going to do two things. I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to give you a new heart. So how does God forgive them? He doesn't just overlook the sin. He sends the Messiah. The Messiah, the one who would usher in the new covenant, who would be the sacrifice for sin, who would be a substitute for sin. He would be the one who by his life and his death and his ministry and his resurrection would take away the sins of the world. And so the foundation of the new covenant is the saving work of Christ. And they rejected him. The one who came to give them a new heart, the one who came to, to save them, the one who came to forgive them, and they rejected Zacharias doesn't know about the rejection yet, though. All he can anticipate is this new covenant and the forgiveness and the salvation and the spiritual blessings that, that come with it. And so he's holding his, his eight-day-old son, eight-day-old son, and he's looking at him as the forerunner of the Messiah who would usher in these new covenant promises. And his heart is filled. It's overflowing. Christ came to initiate the new covenant. He said that, didn't he? At the Last Supper, as they're partaking of the Lord's table together, he says in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the, what? The new covenant in my blood. It's his death that ushered in the new covenant. And so the, the, they don't know this at this point. Zacharias can't anticipate it at this point. But that's exactly what Christ came to do, to usher in the promises and the fulfillment of the new covenant. I want you to notice in Jeremiah 31 that this is unconditional. Look back in Jeremiah chapter 31, and I want you to see all the I wills, starting in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land, my covenant which they broke. But this is the covenant which I will make. 
the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they will not teach again each man his neighbor, each man his brother, knowing, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's an unconditional covenant. There's no conditions given here, right? There's no, there's no statement that says, well, if you do this, then I'll do this. It's an unconditional, unilateral promise by God to do this for his people. Friends, that's the new covenant. A promise of a heart change. A promise of forgiveness. A promise of the law of God written on their hearts. Let's look at a few more. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. Turn a couple of pages to the right. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. That's a new covenant promise. That's exactly what they did. They turned away from God. They rejected their king. They rejected their God and turned to idolatry. But there's a day that's coming, Jeremiah says, or God says through him, that I will make an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from them and they will not turn away from me. By the way, that's never happened. That still hasn't happened. Go to the book of Ezekiel. Two books... To the right, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 60. Ezekiel 16, verse 60. I want you to see that this new covenant is repeated all throughout the latter part of the, new, of the Old Testament. Verse 60 says, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant. That's the new covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger sisters. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord, in order that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation, when I have forgiven you all that you have done. That's a new covenant promise. Forgiveness, when the nation of Israel receives God's forgiveness. Go over to Ezekiel 36. Just a couple more here. Ezekiel 36. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. That day hasn't happened yet. That's a new covenant promise that they will one day be a nation that doesn't profane the name of the Lord, but actually honors Him as holy in their midst. Verse 24, And I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. That's a promise of the Abrahamic covenant. How's that going to happen? Verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Some people see in their infant baptism. That's not infant baptism. 
That's not sprinkling an infant. That is a a promise of God cleansing them as a nation from their sin, of of purifying them, of removing their sin and removing their, their depravity and forgiving them. That's what that's a promise of. God will purify the nation of Israel from their sins. Verse 26, moreover, watch this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. God says, I'm going to give you a new heart, Israel. I'm going to regenerate you. Their hearts have been hard and stubborn and self-willed and rebellious like a stone. And God says, there's coming a day, Israel, when I'm going to take that heart of stone out of you and I'm going to put in you a heart of flesh, a heart of obedience. Verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That was never something that Old Testament saints enjoyed. They never enjoyed the spirit in them, indwelling them. But here, God promises the nation of Israel that I'm going to put my Holy Spirit within you. And because of that, you're going to obey me and you're going to walk in obedience. Verse 28, And then you will live in the land that I gave your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will save you from your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you, and I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, that you may not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations, and that you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations." That's what Israel would have experienced if they had welcomed the Messiah the first time. A nation, their land, productive crops, multiplication of the fields. But their hearts were too stubborn. But one day God will bring about a heart change in the nation of Israel. Want to see an illustration of it? Look over in Ezekiel 37. I love this. This is the vision of the dry bones. You ever read this passage and you just kind of leave your head scratching going, what is this? You ever read this passage? It's tremendous. Let me just read it. Verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and lo, they were dry he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? This is not just referring to dead bodies. This is an illustration of the sinfulness of the nation of Israel. They're dead spiritually. Verse 3, I answered, O Lord, you, you know. And again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life, and I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you and cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. That's not just a prophecy of resurrection. That's a prophecy of the restoration of the nation of Israel when they receive the blessings of the new covenant. Verse 7, so I prophesied as was commanded, and I prophesied there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, 
Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet in an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. You see the desperation? They know that as a nation they've rejected God and they're, they're, they're cut off from God. So verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. Now watch this. And I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. And I will place you on your own land. And then you will know that I am the Lord. have spoken and done it. That's an illustration of the fulfillment of the new covenant. When they as a nation are restored to the land, are restored to be God's people, when they become spiritually alive, when the new covenant is fulfilled within them. Well, go back to Luke 1. Let's go back where we started. Luke chapter 1. Now do you sense what Zacharias was feeling? Now do you feel what Israel was feeling? Now, now, do you, now do you think how they were thinking? Now do you see what they were feeling and what they were hoping for? And now you can understand why Zacharias said why, what he said in Luke 1, verse 76. You child will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's new covenant language. Those are new covenant promises. And Zacharias, who knows his Old Testament, knows that God has promised those things to them as a nation, and he's expecting that they're going to be fulfilled then as the Messiah comes. And it would have had they received him. But they didn't. And so the new covenant for the nation of Israel has been put on hold. They are not currently experiencing the blessings of the new covenant, but they will. One day, when God disciplines them through the tribulation and he brings them back to himself and their hearts are pierced and they mourn over the fact that they rejected their Messiah and when Christ returns a second time, they will see him and then they will welcome him and they will embrace him as their Lord and Savior. And when that happens, all of those promises of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit within them and the law being written on their heart and them becoming a blessing to all nations, all of that will take place when God does a work in their hearts and draws them to himself and the new covenants fulfilled in the nation of Israel. Tremendous. Do you see how it all fits together? Now, here's what some of you are saying. So what? So what? I'll tell you the so what. You're not Israel. And most of you here today are not Jewish. But you're forgiven. And you've got the Spirit of God dwelling within you. And His law is written on your heart. And you've been regenerated. And you've got a heart of stone that's been taken out and replaced with a heart of flesh. So what? 
You're a recipient of this new covenant. You get to partake of the spiritual blessings of the very thing that God promised to the nation of Israel, and you're not Israel. That's what's so what? We receive the, the blessings, the forgiveness, the joy, the, the hearts replaced, the, the, the stony heart removed. We receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and we as the church get to be partakers of this new covenant. And we're not even Israel. Christ came ushering in the new covenant. It was put on hold by the rejection of the Jewish people. So that the full number of the Gentiles, you and me, could be brought in and be saved and given new covenant blessings. It's tremendous. Their rejection is our salvation. But don't ever think that because we, the church, experience some of the blessings of the new covenant, that God has suddenly put his plan with Israel to never put in place. No, it will happen. Romans 11 says that, that he will resume his plan with the nation of Israel one day when they do receive the blessings of the new covenant and they are made into a nation which fears and knows and loves the Lord. That's what Christmas is about. That's what the coming of Christ is all about. The arrival of the one who would usher in the blessings of the new covenant. Pretty tremendous stuff, isn't it? I trust you're encouraged by Zacharias' song. I thought we'd take one week, and there's no way we had to take three weeks. I trust you're encouraged and blessed as you see what Christmas is really about. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this tremendous passage of Scripture that helps us understand your plan for the ages. Lord, we thank you that in it we can understand your heart for your people, that we can understand your desire to save sinners. Let us not presume, Father, that we were better than the nation of Israel. We're not, for we have the same sin problem. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he came to usher in that new covenant, and we get to receive the blessings of it now. We praise you for your sovereignty. We praise you for your grace. And we praise you for your forgiveness. All made possible because of your promises and your son's work at Calvary. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.